Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus reveals more and more of himself to his twelve apostles. As the Father opened their eyes and unstopped their ears, well, all of a sudden, they were able to recognize a truth that had escaped their notice until now. The fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That much became clear as clear could be to Peter and the rest of the disciples. But professing believers throughout the ages are still left to wonder just exactly what that means. Those following Jesus in the first century assumed that he would pursue a political agenda, rally an army of militants and overthrow the Romans with the sword. That's what they wanted, and that's what they expected. And as we fast forward 2,000 years, well, we realize that our wants and expectations are still obscuring the truth from our eyes today. Well, we may not see him as a politician or a combatant as they did in ancient Israel, but we are not without our own theories, our own concepts, our own versions of Jesus as the Christ. But rather than mold him into our image as we tend to do, we ought to look at what Scripture has to say about him. Because, as we were reminded by one theologian last week, Jesus is not customizable. He has not left himself open to interpretation, adaptation, innovation, or alteration. He has revealed himself clearly through his word, and we have no right to personalize him. And yet, that's what the overwhelming majority of churchgoers do. To the point where, when we gather in our buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping some lofty version of ourselves. That's why we need this teaching. Because it shows us Christ. Not as we want him to be. Not as we hope him to be. Not as we've conjured him up to be. No, it shows us Christ as he truly is. And that Christ, friends, is enough for me. Yeah? Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 1. Here Jesus continues his revelation to the apostles as we read this. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. May God bless the reading of his word. Peter makes his confession while the group was en route to Caesarea Philippi. And... While they were there, Jesus taught them about the foundational elements of the church, the nature of his messiahship, and what it means to follow. And now, after almost a week in this region, Jesus calls Peter, James, and John out from among the group for a little hike in the mountains. Although Mount Tabor is the traditional site of the Mount of Transfiguration, it's more likely they ascended Mount Hermon on this occasion, which is the highest peak in the area at an elevation of over 9,000 feet. Now, either way, the site is not all that important because wherever it is, God intends his son to take center stage. As we take a closer look at this familiar but unusual text, I'd like us to consider not just what the transfiguration was, but rather what the transfiguration did. First and foremost, the transfiguration displayed the glory of Christ. Take a look back at verses 1 through 3. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Of course, the key in all of this is that word, transfigured. And those of you who have been in and around Christendom for some time have likely heard it any number of times before. But do we understand exactly what it means? You see, it is a form of the Greek word 
metamorpheo, from which we get the English word metamorphosis. And so in its simplest form, transfigured means transformed, changed, altered in some way for some purpose. And now we are beginning to get to the heart of understanding. See, if we look carefully, we notice the text does not just say that he was transfigured, as though Jesus changed, Jesus was altered, or Jesus was fixed. No, it says he was transfigured before them. That is, before Peter, James, and John. Jesus did not climb a vertical 9,000 feet to have his garments whitened, to chat with some old friends, or take pictures of the amazing view. He went to the top of the mountain with his three closest followers so they would see him in a different light. And that's exactly what happened as Jesus transfigured before them. He changed not who he was, but how he was seen. You see, in the transfiguration, the glory that had been hidden, that had been veiled, that had been covered over by this cloak of humanity, suddenly and brilliantly burst forth, displaying the full magnificence of Christ to the onlooking disciples. What does the glory of Christ look like? Evidently, it is a bright white image, almost blinding to the human eye, that shines so wondrously, so perfectly, so abundantly, that it radiates to all who see it. That's how our words might be used to describe the scene And yet I have no doubt that it was far more impressive than even that. At the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, humbled himself and took on flesh. Now that flesh did not rid him of his godly attributes as though his deity was somehow compromised. Rather, the flesh concealed those attributes from the eyes of men. So even though Peter, James, and John knew Jesus was the Christ, up to this point, they didn't know just how glorious a Christ he really was. And yet not only did they have the privilege of seeing Jesus shining in brilliant lights, they saw him relate with two religious icons as well. Verse 3 tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Now, Moses and Elijah were, in the year 30 AD, the two most renowned names in all of Jewish history. Moses as the giver of the law, Elijah as the greatest of their prophets. In fact, as Malachi brings the Old Testament to its conclusion, both men are mentioned by name. At the end of chapter 4, he tells the nation of Israel to remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances why I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. And behold, I am going to send you Elijah, 
before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Their appearance with Jesus here would have reminded the apostles of God's promise and validated the office of the Christ, whose work would fulfill both the law and the prophets. You see? The transfiguration displayed the glory of Christ. But not only that, it proclaimed the supremacy of Christ as well. Take a look at verse 4. After witnessing the splendor of this vision, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, They fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. I have to appreciate a man like Peter in this scenario. He sees Jesus shining in all of his glory. He sees Moses and Elijah who have long since left the earth. A sight that would have left anyone else in the world utterly speechless. And even though he didn't know what to answer, as we're told in Mark's retelling, Peter speaks to the glorified Jesus anyway. Most of us, I think, would have taken it in, given it just a moment But instead, Peter, anxious to show his zeal, suggests that he construct three tabernacles on top of the mountain. One to honor Christ, one to honor Moses, and another to honor Elijah. Now, a tabernacle is a tent-like structure that in the Old Testament signified the place of meeting between God and man. What Peter has in mind is a more commemorative piece, I'm sure. But still, it would observe the Lord's presence in that place. And at first take, it seems like a decent enough idea. But there are two problems with his proposal. First, Jesus came so we no longer need a tabernacle to meet with God. And second, well, we're not here to honor three people. We're here to honor just one. And this may be the key to this entire event. The Father shows Jesus alongside Elijah And Moses, the two great deliverers of the Jewish faith. 
And then he takes the two away to show us that the greatest deliverer of them all is the one they can still see standing. As verse 8 tells us, the disciples lifted up their eyes and they saw no one left except Jesus himself alone. Look, friends, Moses is great. He is incredible. And the things that came from his mind, heart, and hand are, are beyond compare. Elijah, likewise, a tremendous prophet, without whom we'd be missing some things. But Moses is not the chosen one. Neither is Elijah. No, the father says, this Jesus is my beloved son. You must listen first and foremost to him. And perhaps as clearly as anywhere else in Scripture, we see the Father exalt the Son above everyone and everything else in this world. And isn't that what we just sang? In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Aren't these the things that we sing in our refrains? No other prophets, no other kings. It's Jesus, just Jesus, and always Jesus. And if we actually got that, then we would listen to him. Above and beyond any other voice, from our modern culture. Now, I do not like to presume I know exactly what is in the mind of God. I do not. And yet I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that if he were to open up the heavens and give this kind of personal address to us today, he would say these exact same words. This is my beloved Jesus. Listen to him. He's been saying the same thing for over 4,000 years now. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Give ear, O people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Listen to and obey my son Jesus. Over and over and over again, God gives us these instructions And you think we would have gotten it by now. And yet still, for whatever reason, we erect all of these other tabernacles so we can worship all sorts of other things. All the while wondering why God is not more pleased with our measure of devotion. Now, instead of voicing our opinion making our own suggestion or offering God our advice. We ought to do what James and John did at the unveiling of Christ's glory. 
We ought to quiet our hearts, humble our minds, and bow low before Jesus. That's the appropriate response. And that's what took place here. For when the disciples heard the voice of the Father affirming Jesus the Son, verse 6, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Friends, the voice of God should put us in that position. The recognition of Christ should put us in that position. A glimpse of glory should put us in that position too. For God delights in those who tremble at his word, at those who humble themselves before the one and only Jesus. Are you there? The transfiguration displayed the glory of Christ, proclaimed the supremacy of of Christ, and as we see in verse 9, foretold the crucifixion of Christ as well. As they were coming down from the mountain, we're told, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now it seems, at first take, based on the language that is used here, it is the resurrection of Christ that has been the focal point of their conversation. In fact, Mark goes on to tell us the disciples seized upon this statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead actually meant. So we know this concept of resurrection was a key part of their discussion. But what must happen before someone can be raised from the dead? They must, in fact, be dead. See, the disciples did not struggle with the concept of resurrection. Now, as Jews, they would have understood the intricacies of that doctrine better than most. And unlike the Sadducees, who disagreed with its premise, those with more orthodox beliefs affirmed it to be true. Well, the three men on the mountaintop, Peter, James, and John, they were no exception. They would have been among its proponents, not only from a purely academic standpoint, as they might have some years ago, but now by way of firsthand experience. After all, had they not just seen Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead? And depending on the chronology, they may have even taken part of a resurrection themselves by this point. These men were not hung up on the idea of someone being raised back to life. They were wondering why the Son of Man would ever have to be raised back to life in the first place. Because a Messiah who could die wasn't really their idea of a Messiah. Huh? Surely the imminent death of Jesus was a big part of the conversation for Peter, for James, and for John. But you know, they weren't the only ones having that discussion on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
As it turns out, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were discussing that very same thing. The crucifixion that awaited Christ in the days that followed. Of course, Matthew only tells us that they were talking with Jesus, as we read back in verse 3. But Luke tells us what that conversation was about. According to his retelling, Moses and Elijah were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And not only do we learn from their dialogue that Christ's death would be accomplished, we learn what his death will accomplish too. It all centers around this word departure, which comes from the Greek exodus. Something each of these men is very familiar with in their own unique way. Moses says, during my exodus, people were delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Elijah says, well, during my exodus, people were delivered from the bondage of idolatry. Oh, but that is nothing, they say. They look at Jesus and say, during your exodus, people will be delivered from the bondage of sin itself. As you take their punishment Upon the cross. They were speaking of Christ's crucifixion. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The event that all of the other exoduses in history. Have been pointing us directly toward. Now still. Seems it didn't quite line up perfectly for the apostles at this point. So as they begin down the hill, they are wrestling with this idea, trying to figure out why the Son of Man would have to die and be raised back to life. And many today still struggle with that same idea, which should be no surprise. After all, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ crucified is what? A stumbling block to the Jews and to the Gentiles, nothing but foolishness indeed. Friends, we need to reconcile our hopes of the Messiah with the reality of him. Lest we be left worshiping some version of Christ that captivates our minds but could never break us free from our captivity. Yeah? The transfiguration displayed the glory of Christ, proclaimed the supremacy of Christ, foretold the crucifixion of Christ, and as we see in verse 11, revealed the forerunner of Christ still struggling a bit with this concept in their minds, his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. 
But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him. But rather did to him whatever they wished. So also that is in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now scribes are those experts in the law. They came to be relied upon by the general populace for their knowledge of Scripture and the interpretation of cultural signs. This reference, of course, goes back to the prophecy of Malachi, who speaks of a messenger who will be sent before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah. God speaks of that messenger when he says in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So understand in the minds and hearts of these men what has happened. They say, if you are the Messiah and Elijah has to come before you, then where is he at? After all, that's the sign that we've been given, the sign that we've been waiting for. He must proceed, precede you, otherwise you can't be you. Perhaps now we see the trouble with signs. <laughs> like the Jewish people of the first century, we are dramatically ill-equipped to recognize these things when we see them much less interpret them and what they mean. They know the Scripture calls for Elijah to come before the Christ. Jesus says, how is it you know that and yet remain unaware that your Christ must suffer and die? Well, maybe they studied the way that so many of us do or did throughout our schooling. Yeah, you flip to the first part. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Good. Flip to their end in the book of Malachi. Elijah must be sent before day. The Lord got that. I think I know everything I need to know. <laughs> well, there is a lot more to it than just that. Like the description of what the forerunner would look like when he comes. As Isaiah describes him in chapter 40 of his prophecy, that forerunner will be a voice calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Well, who exactly is that voice? It's not Elijah reincarnate as so many who are hung up on signs believed. It's John the Baptist who according to angelic proclamation would go as a forerunner before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous 
so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The disciples are asking when the Elijah will come. Jesus says, he already did. And they rejected him just as they will reject me. After hearing these words, Matthew tells us the disciples understood exactly who and what he was speaking about. The one who, despite being cast out by the religious establishment, being imprisoned by government officials and executed by Herod himself, is still on record as saying of this Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The transfiguration, friends, displayed the glory of Christ. It proclaimed the supremacy of Christ, foretold the crucifixion of Christ and revealed the forerunner of Christ. No doubt it was an amazing scene, unlike any other in all of Scripture, highlighting the magnificence of this Jesus. And still I find it fascinating that only three men, only three of his followers got to see it. Which three? Of the three who had the most intimate relationship with him. I don't know about you, but I want to be that close to Jesus that I see his glory, his majesty, his dominion, and his power on display. I don't want to be left at the bottom of the hill waiting for others who have been with Jesus to report back on their findings? No. I want to hear from Christ's inner circle. I want to be in it. So I can rightly say to him, show me your glory. Show me your glory, Lord, and I will never, ever be the same. If that's what you want, I hope and pray that it is. Stop wasting your time with the throwaway things of this world. Press closer to him. Go deeper with him. Fix your eyes more squarely on him that you might be privileged enough to see his glory too. Yeah? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have put the magnificence of your Son on display. In the words we read, Lord, in the transformed hearts that we have. Lord, even before our eyes on some occasions. 
You have put the magnificence of your son on display. Help us not to miss it. Lord, I pray that we would not be so distracted with the things of this world, the lesser things, that we would miss Jesus high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory. Lord, we realize that Jesus was the one transfigured, and yet he remained unchanged. While Peter, James, and John Their whole lives should have been transformed by this appearance. I pray that would be true of us as well, that we would be changed at the glimpse of your glory. Lord, continue that work in us, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.